right, this is the second part of the evening on David Foster Wallace and brief interviews with hideous men. What will we be listening to now, Macon? Well, in this, you'll hear more readings from Toka Larson, Alexander Bookswenty, and myself, and my conversation with the feminist activist and critic Emma Holtzman. Hope you enjoy. Yes, enjoy. Interview number 19, October 1996, Newport, Oregon. Why? Why? Well, it's not just that you're beautiful even though you are. It's that you're so darn smart. There, that's why. Beautiful girls are a dime a dozen, but not, hey, let's face it, generally smart people are rare, of either sex. You know that. I think for me it's your smartness more than anything else. (laughs) Ha, that's possible, I suppose, from your point of view. I suppose it could be. Except, think about it a minute. Would that possibility have even occurred to a girl who wasn't so darn smart? Mm. Would a dumb girl have had the sense to suspect that? Phew. So, in a way, you've proved my point. So you can believe I mean it and not dismiss it as just some kind of come on. Right? Phew. So come here. (laughs) Thank you very much. Next one is a duet that Toka and I are going to read together, and I'm going to do it sitting down, try and make it a little more performative. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Whatever. Okay. Interview 28. February 1997, Ypsilanti, Michigan. What does today's woman want? That's the big one. I agree. It's the big one, right? It's the, what do you call it? Or, to put it another way, what do today's women think they want versus what they really deep down want? What do they think they're supposed to want? From a male. From a guy. Sexually. In terms of the old mating dance. Whether it sounds Neanderthal or not, I'm still going to argue that it's the big one. Because the whole question's become such a mess. And you can say that again. Because now, the modern woman has an unprecedented amount of contradictory stuff laid on her about what she's supposed to want and how she's better to conduct herself sexually. The modern woman's a mess of contradictions that they lay on themselves that drives them nuts. <laughs> it's what makes it so difficult to know what they want. Difficult, but not impossible. Like, take your classic Madonna versus whore contradiction. Good girl versus slut. The girl you respect and take home to meet mom versus the girl you just fuck. Yet, let's not forget that overlaid atop the new feminist <clears throat> slash post-feminist expectations that women are sexual <laughs> agents too, just as men are, that it's okay to be sexual, that it's okay to whistle at a man's ass and be aggressive and go after what you want, that it's okay to fuck around. That for today's woman, it's almost mandatory to fuck around. What well, still underneath the old respectable girl versus slut thing. It's okay to fuck around if you're a feminist, but also not okay to fuck around because most guys aren't feminists <laughs> and won't respect you and won't call you again if you fuck around. Do, but don't. A double bind. A paradox. <laughs> Damned either way, the media perpetuates it. <laughs> You can imagine the load of internal stress all this dumps on their psyches. Come a long way, baby, my ass. That's why so many of them are nuts. Out of their minds with internal stress. It's not even really their fault. 
who wouldn't be nuts with that kind of mess of contradictions laid on them all the time in today's media culture. <laughs> the point being that this is what makes it so difficult when, for example, you're sexually interested in one to figure out what she really wants from a male. It's a total mess. <laughs> you can go nuts trying to figure out what tack to take. She might go for it, she might not. Today's woman's a total crapshoot. It's like trying to figure out a send coin. Where what they want's concerned, you pretty much just have to shut your eyes and leave. I disagree. I meant metaphorically. <laughs> I disagree that it's impossible to determine what they really want. I don't think I said impossible. Though I do agree that in today's post-feminist era, it's unprecedentedly difficult and takes some serious deductive firepower and imagination. I mean, if it were really, literally impossible, then where would we be as a species? And I do agree that you cannot necessarily go just by what they say they want. Because are they only saying it because they think they're supposed to? My position is that actually, most of the time, you can figure out what they want. I mean, almost logically. Deduce it. If you're willing to make the effort to understand them, to understand the impossible situation that they're in. But you can't just go by what they're saying is the big thing. There, I'd have to agree. What modern feminists slash post-feminists say they want is mutuality and respect of their individual autonomy. If sex is going to happen, they'll say it has to be by mutual consensus and desire between two autonomous equals who are equally responsible for their own sexuality and, ex and its expression. That's almost word for word what I've heard him say. And it's total horseshit. <laughs> they all sure have the empowerment lingo down pat, that's for sure. You can easily see that it's horseshit um, as long as you remember by start start by recognizing the impossible double bind that we've already discussed. It's not all that hard to see. Cue. That she's expected to be both sexually liberated and autonomous and assertive, and yet at the same time she's still conscious of the old respectable girl versus slut dichotomy, and knows that some girls still let themselves get used sexually out of basic lack of self-respect, and she still recoils at the idea of ever being seen as the kind of pathetic round heel sort of woman. Plus, remember, the post-feminist girl now knows that the male sexual paradigm and the females are fundamentally different. Mars and Venus. Right, exactly. <laughs> and she knows that as a woman, she's naturally programmed to be more high-minded and long-term about sex, and to be thinking more in relationship terms than just fucking terms. So if she just immediately break, breaks down and fucks you, she's on some level still taking, getting a taken advantage of, she thinks. This, of course, is because today's post-feminist era is also today's post-modern era, in which, supposedly, everyone knows everything about what's really going on underneath all the semiotic codes and cultural conventions, and everybody's supposed to know what paradigm everyone, everybody is operating out of, and, we're so, and so we as individuals all held to it be far more responsible for our sexuality, since everything we do is now unprecedentedly conscious and informed. Well, at the same time, she's still under this incredible sheer biological pressure to find a mate and settle down and nest and breed. For instance, go read this thing, uh, The Rules, and try to explain its popularity any other way. The point being that women today are expected to be responsible both to modernity and to history. Not to mention <laughs> sheer biology. Biology is already included in the range of things that I mean by history. <laughs> oh, oh, so you're using history more in a Foucaultian sense. <laughs> I'm talking about history as a set of conscious, intentional human responses to a whole range of forces, of which biology and evolution are a part. But the point is, it's an intolerable burden on women. The real point is that, in fact, they're just logically incompatible, these two responsibilities. Even if modernity itself is a f historical phenomenon, Foucault would say. <laughs> I'm just pointing out that nobody can honor two logically incompatible sets of perceived responsibilities. This has nothing to do with history. 
It's pure logic. Personally, I blame the media. So what's the solution? <laughs> Schizophrenic media discourse exemplified by like, for example, Cosmo. On one hand, be liberated. On the other hand, make sure you get a husband. The solution is to realize that today's women are in an impossible situation in terms of what their, what their perceived sexual responsibilities are. <coughs> I can bring home the bacon, mm-mm-mm, fried up in a pan, mm-mm-mm. And that, as such, they're naturally going to want what any human being faced with two irresolvably conflicting sets of responsibilities are going to want. Meaning, what they really are going to want is some way out of these responsibilities. An escape hatch. Psychologically speaking. A back door. Hence the timeless importance of passion. They want to be both responsible and passionate. No. <laughs> what they want is, to be, is, an experience of, is an experience of passion so huge, overwhelming, powerful, and irresistible that it obliterates any guilt or tension or culpability they might feel about betraying their perceived responsibilities. In other words, what they want from a guy is passion. They want to be swept off their feet, blown away, carried off on the wings of... The logical conflict between their responsibilities can't be resolved, but their postmodern awareness of this conflict can be. Escaped. Denied. Meaning that deep down, they want a, a man who's going to be so overwhelmingly passionate and powerful that they feel they have no choice, that this thing is bigger than the both of them, that they can forget there's even such a thing as post-feminist responsibilities. <laughs> D- deep down, they want to be irresponsible. <laughs> I suppose in a way I agree, though I don't think they can really be faulted for it because I don't think it's conscious. Well, it dwells as a Lacanian cry in the infantile unconscious, <laughs> the lingo would say. I mean, it's understandable, isn't it? The more these logical, inco- logically incompatible responsibilities are forced on today's females, the stronger their unconscious desire for an overwhelmingly powerful, passionate male who can render the whole double bind irre- irrelevant by so totally overwhelming them with passion that they can allow themselves to believe that they couldn't help it, that sex wasn't a matter of conscious choice, that they can't be held responsible for it, that ultimately, if anyone's responsible, it was the male. Which explains why the bigger the so-called feminist, the more she'll hang on you and follow you around after you sleep with her. I'm not sure I'd go along with that, but it follows that the bigger the feminist, the more grateful and dependent she's going to be. After you've written in on your white charger, relieved her of responsibility. What I disagree with is the so-called. Oh, I see. I don't believe that today's feminists are being consciously insincere <laughs> in all their talk about autonomy. Just as I don't believe that they're strictly to blame for the terrible bind they found themselves in. Though deep down, I suppose I do have to agree that women are historically ill-equipped for taking genuine responsibility for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't suppose either of you saw where the little Wranglers' place was. I don't mean that in any kind of just another Neanderthal male grad student putting down women because he can't, he's too insecure to countenance their sexual subjectivity way, and I'd go to the wall to defend them against scorn or culpability for a situation that's clearly not their fault. Because it's getting time to answer nature's page, if you know what I mean. I mean, even simply looking at the evolutionary aspect, you have to agree that a certain lack of autonomy slash responsibility was an obvious genetic advantage as far as primitive human females went, since a weak sense of autonomy would drive them to a primitive female towards a primitive male to provide food and protection. While your more autonomous butch-type female would be out hunting on her own, actually competing with the males for food. And raised... Um, the, but the point being is that they're less self-sufficient, less autonomous females found mates and bred. And raised offspring. And thus perpetuated the species. Natural selection favored the ones who found mates instead of going out hunting. 
I mean, how many cave paintings of female hunters are you going to see? <laughs> Historically, we should note that once the quote-unquote weak female has mated and bred, she shows an often spectacular sense of responsibility where her offspring are concerned. It's not that females are, have no capacity for responsibility. That's not what I'm talking about. They do make great moms. <laughs> what we're talking about here is single adult pre-primipera females the genetic slash historical capacity for autonomy, for, as it were, self-responsibility in dealing with males. Evolution has spread out of them. Look at the magazines. Look at the romance novels. What today's woman wants, in short, is a male with both passionate sensitivity, passionate sensitivity and the deductive firepower to discern that all of her pronouncements about autonomy are actually desperate cries in the wilderness of the double bind. They all want it. They just can't say it. <laughs> Putting you, today's interested male, in, sh um, in a paradoxical role of almost their therapist or priest. They want absolution. <laughs> when they say, I am my own person. I do not need a man. I am responsible for my own sexuality. They're actually telling you what they want you to make them forget. They want <laughs> to be rescued. They want you, on some level, to wholeheartedly agree and respect what they're saying, and on another deeper level, to recognize that it's total horseshit, and to gallop in on your white charger and so overwhelm them with passion, just as males have been doing since time immemorial. That's why you can't take what they say at face value, it'll drive you nuts! <laughs> Basically, it's all, an elaborate, it's all still an elaborate semiotic code, with new postmodern semions, of autonomy and responsibility, replacing the old pre-modern semions of chivalry and courtship. I really do have to see a man about a prancing pony. <laughs> the only way not to get lost in the code is to approach it, the whole issue logically. What is she really saying? No doesn't mean yes, but it doesn't mean no either. <laughs> I mean, the capacity for logic is what has distinguished us from the animals to begin with. Which, no offense, but logic is not exactly a woman's strong suit. Although, if the whole sexual situation is illogical, it can hardly make sense to blame today's woman for being weak on logic. I mean, for giving off constant barrage of paradoxical signals. In other words, they're not responsible for not being responsible, is what he's saying. I'm saying it's tricky and difficult, but that if you use your head, it's not impossible. Because think about it. If it was really impossible, where would the whole species be? Life always finds a way. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Hi. Hi. This is. Uh, we, we, we've talked mostly over email, but hello. Here I am. Great. Thanks for coming. And you read this book for um, this event, and you hadn't read it before, and um, do you want to start off by talking about your uh, impressions after the wine is carried oh, across in a... Thank you so much. The women working for me. Great. Um, I've never read Wallace before, I don't know why. Um, I, I know I should, and many people have told me to, and this was a great... That's just hegemony. Yeah, Pretty much, yes. And of course I must resist it. No. Um, I only read female writers. Of course. Um, of course. No, but, but I was actually excited to read it because um, I liked Sadie Smith's text on it, and I mm. still do, but I disagree with it. Okay. Um, and I found it thoroughly enjoyable. Everything that confirms my bad ideas of men, of course, is a pleasure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, I liked it. <laughs> it was a, it was a true joy. So so um, I was right. Was what I was thinking. <laughs> I, I knew it. That deep down there was this this gaping void of. Um... Now it's confirmed. <laughs> It's so awful hearing this specific piece. It's just, I just know I have sex with men who are like this. I just mm. know it. And they're just not like that when they're with me. That's what I'm thinking. That's the, they're just not saying these things, but I, but I can feel it. And I think that's what you feel reading this text as a woman, is that you've been treated this way. You recognize it very cl- clearly, how they abuse your kindness mm. and how they abuse your sense of empathy for their extreme cynicism and how you love them despite that. Mm. Um, and you attempt to give them a humanity that they do not grant you at all. Mm. So it's painful, but it's also revelatory. Oh, that's, that's a lot there. <laughs> I thought that's why you brought me here. Well, yes. yes I, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not all men. Well, no, I'm not. I, but, but some of I, them. I, I, I assumed not. Um, <laughs> but I think that's... Um, so this is where you disagree with, with, with Zeddy Smith, is that you, um, you don't think... Well, so, so yeah, what is, what is that particular point of disagreement that you have there? I think that for me, I, I wouldn't say that empathy is the right word. That I, th- I don't think um, Wallace wants us to empathize with these people because that would be kind of ac- accepting their premise of dehumanizing women as mm. being an acceptable standpoint. And I don't think he thinks that. I think much more it is um, it's a project of, of understanding mm. how these people function in society and how despite their... Uh, hideous, hideous uh, positions towards most people, actually, even also most men, who, mm. because they also, that's the, that's the funny thing about misogyny, it also stretches to a supreme lack of dis- respect for men who respect women. Mm. Um, it kind of rubs off on men who respect women, so the, the misogyny rubs off there. And I think that he, he wants us to understand where these people are and how they function. Um, and I think that we all have some misogyny in us, um, similar to this, and he maybe wants us to uncover that as well. I think that's the, th- the thing is he's trying to point to a misogyny, which is not not a deep down uh, problem of uh, a kind of locked, locked up drive, but yeah. it is something that is relational. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a continuous uh, production of the structure of the woman as, as a figure. Mm. Um, and I, and I, it must be difficult being a misogynist these days with all these women doing so well. Um, you, like the, the cognitive rings of fire you have to spring through to justify to yourself that women are less than you. We just heard it, right? Like the, like the acrobatics you have to do to kind of... Uh, every single diff- different woman, how diverse they are, and the divergence in between that group, you just you have to use history and Foucault and Lacan and <laughs> cave paintings in order to <laughs> kind of justify that they're not really like you. Mm. So at the end of the day, I think misogyny is always the same, um, which is you know uh, an attempt to uh, raise yourself up by putting other people down and. Um, mm. And exerting power is what it ends up being. Oh, it's also the, yeah, the, and the joy that you get from that power. Yeah, yeah. it's it's oh, it's a, it's a thrill having yeah. power. Mm. We all know that. What what uh, strikes me as interesting is that is, is the uh, that these acrobatics, in some ways, actually then become their own demonstration of power that they that you are capable. But I think also like the first premise, like to say that I am going to solve the women problem. <laughs> Better than them. Oh. <laughs> but, but, but also, like, that there is the women problem. Yes. The problem that women have. The issue is, is, of women. As if that is, you know, that, that, that first move 
is is this uh, presupposition that they're they're this this objective sub subject relationship that they are not subjects with complex inner lives. They are a set of cultural necessities and um, and needs and signification. That's yeah, and that's the, uh, that's an interesting thing with you know this construct of the woman. Um, I thought about it a lot. Um, there was a debate about catcalling in Copenhagen like two years ago, one year ago, um, and it like the whole going back and forth was. Do women consider this a compliment or do they not? Um, is this, you know, um, an integral part of flirting and on the on the interesting, you know, heteronormative, you know, someone's the chase or someone's the chaste, all these types of things. And there was these guys kind of insisting that women saw this as a compliment. Mm. And even though um, I, uh, a, a woman, um, said... I do not consider it a compliment. It kind of excluded me from the group of women that they chose to consider as part of the group. Mm. So the thing is that um, pretty constantly, women tend to fall out of the construct, but the construct still remains. They're just exceptions to the entire construct. Mm. So even though me, a flesh and blood woman, says, I don't enjoy this, I am then, I am then an exception that doesn't even have to be considered as a part of what contributes to the diversity of the group of mm. women, which is very clever. <laughs> <laughs> that's how they do it. Yes, that's the... They exclude us, us who say, you know, no, I'm not like that, or mm. us who very obviously prove we're not like that. And that's the thing with, with the whole biology thing, right, mm. that always comes up, is that I would say that something that is biologically predisposed, something like hunger or needing sleep or something, is because it's decided by biology, it must, you know, apply to everyone. Mm. That's the thing with mm. biology. Um, and then they say, you know, but women biologically want children. And then there's a woman who's like, I don't. Mm -hmm. And then it's still biology for some reason. Mm. So even though we constantly break these biological barriers and do very different things and make very different choices, it just kind of still doesn't count. Mm. Um, and that's a very interesting use of statistics. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, yeah, it, it's how you relate to the like if you uh, remain negatively defined, isn't it? Like uh, yeah, I think that's it. Like if you. Well, you, as you can define biology as being a specific, specific way, then you can say that someone who does not fit that specific way is is then ill. Yeah. Is then. Uh... It's like it's a mutation. I think mm. that's how they see it. It's it's yeah. You might be like that, but that's very rare, as you probably know. <laughs> um, so it's like a, a dog walking on its hind legs. A woman not wanting children. It's like yes, you you might be like that, but you must surely know that not all people are like that. Um, and then we're back at the same thing again, mm. where we can talk about the woman issue as you know one big and slurp. It's, it's almost like this, like uh, this this cultural motivation to categorize, to have things finally fixed. Like um, there's a nice line in uh, in, in, in Fight Club which, where where he's, where, he, where he's just realized. Where he's <laughs> You're quoting uh, Chuck to me. No, <laughs> no, but it's just we've just realized that he's um that he's a. Uh, that his old apartment's grew and he's like, that was the last couch I was ever going to have to buy. <laughs> I finally got the couch problem sorted. And so I, it's like we wanted exactly the woman that. problem sorted. We wanted that just to be done and we can move on. And also, like, you know, within, like, like fine, okay, people can vote now and technically you're allowed to be paid the same. Whether or not that works out, blah, 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 but that's done. Okay, we've given the concessions. Now can we just let there be a biological truth that underpins it anyway? <laughs> so we're working exactly. it. That is our magnanimous Can gift. you please tell me if you want children or not? <laughs> um, and I think that's the thing is that um, my impression is that I have um, been raised to view men as humans. Mm. 
Um, um, which, which means that when I'm confronted with uh, very diverse uh, types of mm. males, it does not surprise me. Mm. And when I am confronted with uh, males being victims of supreme injustice, I feel a visceral sense of doing the right thing. And I want to do mm. something right to fix mm. this. Mm. Um, and when I feel that they're generalized, I feel a sense of, you know, this is wrong. It's not supposed to be like that. And I think we all have this sense. And I think it also applies some, somewhat to how we feel about white people. Um, is that when we feel that when the, this is this is wrong, it's not supposed to be like that. Not not all men are like that. You will see that in, in articles on, on, on men or masculinity mm. or patriarchy. There will be a lot of women who say, you know what, not all men are like that. Mm. Um, yet very few men tend to say the same about women. Mm. Um, and I understand that it must be, and that's what I think is interesting about be, having it be difficult to be a misogynist, is that men are definitely not raised in a society where mm. they're taught to see women as humans. Mm. So when they actually uh, start encountering us in real life and have to, you know, fall in love with us or whatever it is that you do with us, um, hang out with us, befriend us, have beers with us, it must be confusing to find out that we're actually even almost as complex as you are. <laughs> um, and, and that must be a challenge. And I think that, that those two assholes you just portrayed mm. are right. You know, mm. that, there, that there is some media shit to it. There is some stereotyping to it. It's just um, they got the chicken and egg wrong. Yeah. That they, um, they would manage to identify all the causes for a problem which they've also manufactured. Yeah, it's just, it's just how so impressive how they manage to overlook their own complicity in mm. the issue. As if they're just like outsiders <laughs> looking in at this world where they luckily have no role at all. <laughs> but, which actually yeah, it, it reminds me back to the conversation that I was having with Mikkel about knowledge and how that plays into this. Like, because they, they, <laughs> they think they have access to the knowledge about the subject... Well, that's fine then, so I can now work it through. That, I, that they're not enmeshed within the ethical relationship, they're not enmeshed within the social relationship. They are, it is an object of research. I think that's an enlightenment issue we have there, where we've constructed and taught, and we teach men that they are the objective viewer of the mm. world and that they can have an, a view on the world that is not um, influenced by their lived experience or by the body that they inhabit um, or, that, or the gender that they have or the skin color that they have or, or, or whatever, that they're actually allowed to speak from this invisible mm. position. And I think that that's a perfect example of what we're seeing in the piece you just read is that they honestly see themselves as legitimate observers of a world, mm. um, which must be so nice. Um, <laughs> and, and I wish that were me. It, sounds, it must be a great sense of security. And I think that, that, is, that this, the sense of being the universal person, the invisible, a nondescript observer that does not, by their presence, a change the nature mm. of a room, mm. that is, to me, the true marker of privilege. Mm. To, to allow yourself to be invisible mm. and to feel that genuinely on your body. Mm. What a joy. Well, to, well to, to, not, to not feel it. Exactly, you don't. Yeah, yeah you to, and that, that's that, that, yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> and, and that was the... Um, that's the bugger. Yeah. Because then you've got to say, like, look at that. What? Yeah. yeah. Me. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yourself. Which actually, it's the thing which I, you know, come up against all the time when I'm trying to do my own research, like, thinking, like, why the hell am I allowed to write anything? <laughs> like, that's like, a good reflex. A lot of women have it all the time when we speak about everything. It's just because it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, mm. like, like, because I'm allowed to ask these questions of academic research, 
I'm already the wrong person to be answering them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a healthy reflex. So I think that, uh, yeah, that's why, that's why I was trying to get up here so everyone can see. I'm, I'm healthy. Um, <laughs> You're not like them, man. Oh, I'm not like them. <laughs> You're a good man. Damn it. Yeah, but they were so powerful. Nice guy, trademark. Nice one. I mean, I think I think what's interesting is the um, is 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 like how do we draw out this negative, this like negative capacity like, that like by because like, the positive thing is like when you are it's a, it's a it's an addition to be identified as a woman within the culture like it's a deviation from the white male standard. So like how do you like well, I think these stories are very good. What these collections quite good at doing is drawing attention to this negative capacity. Um, I haven't got a real good way to expand on that. Do you want me to? Please do. I think that that kind of is the big issue of identity politics, both as as a political activist thing, but also, you know, when we interpret art and we interpret Mm. ways of speaking and position from whence a person can speak, is this that um, those who... And I, Sarah Ahmed speaks a lot about this and, and does it much better than I ever could. But she, she talks about this thing about how the person who um, draws atten- uh, attention to the fact that they are an identity um, are blamed for bringing identity into it. Mm. And I think that that's kind of the barrier you always meet when you're speaking about the fact that, you know, we all carry mm. an identity. Um, and we all carry a lived experience that influences our politics, our, our art, our, our especially our our. our position of speaking. And I think that that is why to so many privileged people, both men and women, this idea of speaking about identity in general seems like a tremendous type of violence onto mm. them. Mm. Because it it forces them to to see to non to to see themselves as non-objective. Mm. Um, which I, when you've read a lot of Kant and Voltaire must be uncomfortable. Because we were taught in a, in a Western uh, literary and philosophical tradition that insists on this objectivity as, as being what we should all strive for. We see it in Habermas, we see it all everywhere, all, everywhere we go. Um, and identity politics is a radical subversion mm. of that way of thinking. And, it, it, and I think it's probably one of the biggest fights that, that we have in terms of diversifying and, and multiplying the voices that we allow... Mm. Um, is kind of admitting to ourselves that, you know what, the objective observer never existed. But that's fine. It's mm. okay. We can still have mm. find tremendous important common ground in, in covering politics and art criticism. We can still actually maybe open up more space. Maybe there's a, a huge potential mm. in these different positions. Maybe it was always mm. a violence to force people to adopt one vantage point in order to be heard. Mm. But when if we want to do that, we have to make people give up the privilege of thinking that they are the objective observer. Mm. And that's kind of the challenge, I would say. Well, that's... Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think that's, that's, that's what we're framing now. Is like, <laughs> I, I, the fact that we can't ever detach the project of um, epistemology from ethics. Yeah, I like, think you, that's you it. Can't form, yeah, you can't form knowledge without realizing its relation its relation to your position as the observer like like to, yeah the, th- the very thing of like to be able to feel that you are entitled to ask the question to know about the world is to suggest something about your position yes and yeah um, and that is something which i think that especially yeah, in the humanities we are we should be working very hard to move beyond and and <laughs> harder than, we, harder are than we are. And, and I think that's what this book does so well, and that's why I enjoy it so much, is that what it does is that 
it not necessarily enlightens the the masculine experience as a whole, but what it does is kind of unmask these. Um, f- for example, a thing that I noticed um, very strongly is um, not fearing physical violence, not having f- the fear of physical or sexual violence as kind of a condition for mm. your lived experience. The way that that these um, men talk about sexual violence against women, which they do actually kind of a lot, they're very, very fascinated, um, not only by the actual act of sexual violence, but by, you know, this constant fear and threat that they're fully aware that sexual violence is to women often. Um, but they see it as a spectacle. Um, they, they see it as, as you know, a, a, an an exotic story of something that's happening in a faraway land. And I think that's where the true misogyny kind of unveils itself, is that they do not see the fear that women feel um, of sexual violence uh, as something that is in any way akin to a fear that they would feel. Um, that that it, it's not something that enlists empathy as much as, you know, a kind of curious interest. Mm. Um, and... And to me, as a, as a as a young woman who walks around a lot alone and travels a lot alone, um, and tries not to have my life ruled by a fear that might be abstract or might be real, um, it's it seems it's very offensive. <laughs> um, not in like I, I'm kindle, but um, <laughs> but in a way where. Um, I just feel like you have no fucking idea what you're talking about, mm. um, and I and I feel that 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 is very revelatory, and I think that um, actually the points I think that it's very fruitful for mm. men and women to talk about this book together because I think that men would sometimes be surprised at what women find mo- find most offensive, mm. and I think women would be surprised by what men uh, empathize with in mm. this book. I would be interested to hear that. Because mm. um, I think it's it's not always what what we think, and I think that's the interesting thing about the invisible position is that it's actually invisible to us all, mm. and that's what these these sometimes extremes, but you know sometimes you know pretty common people do. Mm. That that realization, like yeah, because like, certainly for me reading it, like the what the book, like in terms of my my position as a man reading it, was I was looking at looking at myself realizing that. Realizing that motion of projection, where I, where I cannot fathom that that what that um, what I think about like what I think is upsetting me, is 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 mostly from me. Yeah, it's mostly from my interpretation, from my uh, the way that I'm receiving information, and but I have to, but like in the first instance, I must externalize this. I must um, blame other people because I consider myself well, like, you know. I consider myself a feminist. I consider myself no, 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 but that's not objective. You consider yourself objective until you realize you're not, and then. And And you know what? I've had that mm. experience too, Mm. and that's the thing. I think that as um, an extremely privileged white cis um, straight woman in Copenhagen, I'm actually, if we take it from an intersectional perspective, um, in a position where I have, for most of my life. inhabited a position that is very similar to that of a white male. Mm. Um, and so I actually pretty strongly empathize with um, having uh, a personal understanding that, holy shit, we're not all equal. Mm. Like, having that shift um, in worldview 
And, and I, I constantly think about this in, in, in my activism and when I do speeches and talks on this, uh, is that how do we um, provoke that shift um, to people for whom it, it would seem very foreign mm. um, without them having to live through a terrible trauma, which is how most of us <laughs> figure it yeah. out. Um, and, and that's how it is. Most of us realize it from, you know, terrible acts of racism or sexism or, or just an experience that makes us feel, okay, this is uh, structural, uh, structural and accumulative and systemic um, and not isolated, isolated acts. Um, that have to do with me as a person um, or, or this person as a person. Um, and I think getting people to that realization is very much about um, telling them that their experience of the world is not true. Mm. It does not hold it shows truth value for them and mm. it's valid in a discussion, but it is not over the board true. Yeah. And allow for these conflicting uh, images of the world to coexist. Mm. And I think that that's what this book does as well, is that I fully realize that these people exist. And I acknowledge their worldview as being very real and having a very real effect on the world. Mm. Um, but they're just also assholes. And, and I think that, that that's the difficult part. And I think that's, where I'm all, uh, uh, that's why I always get back to this enlightenment thing, because it's so deep in us. Mm. that that we should always strive mm. to to be objective and i always get in this discussion with guys who read mm. philosophy right yeah that well like the wrong philosophy yeah <laughs> yeah like none of the right ones no, ever like, like the like the really <laughs> like, like the like, bad like, ones like, like really obviously like why do they wrong. do that why do you think they do that it makes you very powerful very quickly because you can start saying categorical imperative and really fast yeah and that's the thing because <laughs> that's the thing with all these guys they yeah. read too much Nietzsche right yes and they think that they, they think that being a ubermensch is criticizing religion mm. but the thing that I'm seeing is that the true criticizers of the structural hegemonic dominant mm. people now are not people who criticize religion it's mm. pre people who criticize structural racism mm. or heteronormativity or neoliberalism that that's the people who are actually stepping outside society and saying something is wrong in the basic fabric of how we structure this society so the ubermensch is obviously the feminist it's mm. <laughs> <laughs> a fantastic point um, <laughs> thank you but yeah, Having I, power I, is terrific. It is very good. Like the, the whole stage thing. That's yeah. like, there's no stage. It's just level. But still, but people can feel it. I know. It's invisible. The bonds that happen here between us. No, but that's the thing, and mm. I think that that's that's the. I think the Nietzsche thing is very important here. Is that we also have this idea of objectivity as being the power position. That the people who cannot achieve objectivity and who do not strive for it, that they're slaves. And that's the thing that's mm. being applied to identity politics all the time, that we're the true slaves, the people who are not colorblind or the people who are not genderblind are the true slaves to groupings. And I think that this is a valid um, critique that we as identity mm. politics thinking people should, should um, absorb and, and criticize within ourselves. When do we come to a point where we're actually reproducing these categories and when do we come to a point where we're criticizing them while still attempting to undermine them? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a paradox. I think it's difficult. Yeah, I, I think that, that it's, it's, in some ways it's this, this whole question of like deciding that it's going to be true. Like that, uh, as you're saying, like your experience growing up here is that you have a lot of empathy for the white male position. Because, but it's also because like... <coughs> the relationships between these positions are, are, are seem to be natural, are seem to be 
the way that they are. They seem they 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 they, um, they land they lend validity and justification to so much behaviour, to so much which seems unchangeable, which seems to be the way that things actually work. And what I mean, maybe with what you're asking people to do is like what you, <laughs> which is why it's going which is why it's so difficult. Is you're actually asking. I don't think you can get to this point without some trauma. Not necessarily trauma to make it happen, but that it will be traumatic to take down the world. I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that... And I hope it doesn't have to be. Well, maybe not traumatic, but it has to be, it's, it's going to be very confusing and disorienting. Isn't it? Yeah, it's... <laughs> I, think it's al- I think it already is pretty confusing. Um, but, but, yeah... But the thing is that people who who think like like I do, or at least like you do, is that we're also, or I think that you do, is that we're also hypocrites. Because yeah. what we do, what we want people to do, is to think like we do. Yeah. I genuinely think that I'm right, mm. and I genuinely think that Donald Trump is wrong, mm. and I genuinely think that people who are racists are stupid, mm. and I think that people that not being a racist is the right thing to do, and I think having. Um, a strong, strong social security net mm. and free uh, schools and free hospitals and taking care of the poor and slashing and you know taking a lot of mm. money from the rich. I genuinely think it's a better thing to do. Mm. So I'm not a relativist. And I think that's mm-hmm. what we also have to admit within this you know kind of left wing identity politics movement is that we have a very specific reading of the world and we want other people to adopt it. But, but that's the thing is like, that's why it's, it's always a question of ethics that we are not going to like we know we cannot cannot just say that this is correct and it must be adopted because that's what Stalinism did <laughs> and so it, it's a, a much more difficult question of negotiation and but again resisting that impulse to a kind of third way middling not really doing anything sort of politics which is uh, yes I think you're right okay um and and I think that we also I think that's the thing that it is a negotiation, and we also have to kind of be adamant and admit um, that there are slightly uh, normative and fascist leanings within the identity politics left-leaning mm-hmm. wing, mm-hmm. that we tend to also have this impulse of, you know, wanting power over other people and having our opinions win over mm. other people's opinions. And I think that <laughs> kind of critically engaging mm-hmm. with with that position and engaging in whether is it even possible for me to coexist in a world with Donald Trump and have him be the way he is while I am the way I am and while people of Hispanic descent are the way that mm. they are and live the way they live, is that even possible? It, will we not always have to fight a fight for ideas where one idea wins and one idea loses? And I think that's what's interesting also here, mm. is that um, we know that these ideas exist, but is, is my fight engaging in a fight where I fight for my humanity towards these people? Mm. Is, is, that, is that what I'm doing? Is that what my work is? Um, do I convince them that I'm a complex human being? Is that what feminist work is? Um, can can they exist while I'm humanized in society? I, I don't know. Well, that would be very much Sarah Ahmed's criticism. Would be that to be, Sorry, to be you? like that would be very much Sarah, Sarah Ahmed's uh, yeah. criticism. Would like like you know to to have to like why why would why is that placed upon me? Yeah. To convince you that you're wrong. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think that that's the thing that. That uh, you have, you say to yourself after a long day of discussions and talks and stuff is that why does the feminist always have to be the bigger person? <laughs> 
Well, and I think that that's maybe the difference between being an activist and, and being a feminist, is that being an activist is a person who, who's, who puts it upon themselves mm. to actually do this effective work that it is to change people's minds. And I don't think that anyone in an oppressed situation in any shape or form has the responsibility to do that. Mm. I applaud the people who do it, and I find them to be incredibly important for social change, but it is not a responsibility that you have to mm. do that. Um, and I think that that's where people in privileged positions, um, but who have had this flip or turn mm. where they've understood that, that we live in an equal society where structural oppression is rampant and these power structures keep reproducing themselves again and again, is that we should maybe put the onus on them mm. and say, why don't you have these conversations in bars? Why don't you have this talk with your dad so I don't have to? Mm. Um, and, and I think that, that that's prob and that's the thing that I'm kind of missing from both the anti-racist movement and the feminist movement and, and all the kind of intertangled movement is that we have to put the focus on the privileged people in our movements. Mm. Um, they don't do nearly enough work, uh, considering that it's so much easier for them to be considered full subjects mm. um, than it is for, for people who are, yeah, figuratively uh, down a rung on the ladder. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to leave it there at this particular moment. Thanks so much for Thank you for on. having me. And we'll, we'll pick it up in a bit. We'll be back so this is it for this month. In July, we'll be back with the book club where we take on the violently monotonous novel Richard Yates by Taolin. And you can't hear it, but I'm really excited. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>